Hello, and welcome to the Good News Podcast, where we try to share the good news of Christ's salvation. We'll try to upload a new message every week for you. For more information, or to send us a comment, please visit us at www.gathered.com. Thank you. The following message was given by David Oliver of Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, at the Brookfield Gospel Hall in Brookfield, Connecticut, in the fall of 2003. It was part of a two-week seminar series on future events entitled Finding Security in an Uncertain World. For outlines of these messages, please go to www.gather.com. Coming tonight, and remember that uh, the next meeting will be Sunday night, 7.30, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. will be the concluding nights of the meetings, and so we would encourage those that can to be with us for those remaining four nights. Now, tonight we'll read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 17 and chapter 18. (coughs) Revelation, chapter 17. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven bowls or vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great harlot, the great whore, that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman having a scarlet-colored beast upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand, or having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon, the Great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration or great wonder. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind that hath wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains, on which the woman sitteth, and they are, or they also are, Seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, 
but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. And this is thrilling reading. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud or strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of demons, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to his works, in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her, double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, mortally, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and have no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And then you have the amazing description of the burning and the destruction of this woman, the amazement of the merchants. And then we have in verse 11, verse 12, the merchandise that she had, all kinds of precious things, expensive things. Down further at the end of the chapter, verse 21, and a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. And thy merchants were the, for thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and by thy sorceries were all the nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Now, tonight, 
with all due respect to the ladies who are here with us, we are going to look at the worst of women. And uh, they are not a number, she is one individual woman whose character, whose deeds are absolutely abomination as far as God is concerned. So we've been looking down through the night's past at the sequence of events from the fact of God's plan and his work with the nation of Israel, the church, and then the stage being set for this seven-year period of time. And this woman now is actually given to us in Revelation 17 and 18 as the epitome of all the evil that has gone before throughout this seven-year period of time, all the evil that has been at work in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of the Revelation, uh, all that has been opposed to God in the name of God, all down through the years, is now identified in her true character. And she is spoken of as Mystery Babylon the Great. There is something about her that you would not understand unless God told you. This is how dreadfully, in this case, how dreadfully abominable she is can only be understood and communicated by God himself. So, let us look together tonight at the, uh, the woman. I wondered if, if you would think it's a prejudicial statement if I say this. There is nothing so beautiful as a woman with character that is displayed in her. And there is nothing so distasteful as a woman who lacks character. A woman whose character is as low as the kind of woman we're looking at tonight. Um, a woman that has discretion, uh, a woman that has a fair countenance and lacks discretion, the wise man says, is like a precious jewel in a swine's snout, which is not really very attractive. And so, I think what I'm saying is borne out by the Word of God as well. And so, I just remind you, this was mentioned uh, earlier in the meeting, but I just remind you that while we look at this woman, I think that the book is, is building to the display of another woman. And the other woman is lasting, her beauty is radiant with the glory of God, and she will never, never be brought to destruction she is a city whose glory is unending, but this woman is described really as being a city whose judgment will come suddenly, finally, from God, and she embodies all that is opposed to God, all that is evil. The greatest evil, as we would think of it, I, I think this is all right to say this way, would be the character of this woman as she's described as a harlot. And yet God says that may be the greatest of evils. But if you want to know what the real character of great evil is, it is spiritual mixing of what claims to be mine and as well embraces all that opposes me. There's something of tremendous significance that God says, this woman who is guilty of such terrible sin, abomination, 
is actually a woman who represents what is religious that has been robbed of its character, compromised, and it is, as far as God is concerned, the worst form of evil possible. Spiritual corruption, as far as this woman is concerned. Now, just to look over what we have read, um, maybe we'll be able to just touch down here and there at some of the very specific interpretation that is given regarding this woman. But her name, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. I always think of um, Saddam Hussein when I think of the mother of wars. And uh, she's the mother of harlots. All other sin finds its source, its abominable source, in her. Whoever she is, she is a capital figure for iniquity and abominations as far as the earth is concerned. Uh, Babylon, that mixture of uh, idolatry that pretended to have worship and was actually willing to compromise the worship of God and the worship of idols in all its sad mixture. Now, the character that's given to this woman here. She stands, Babylon stands opposed to Jerusalem, right? Because the other woman is linked with the city, Jerusalem. And so, we'll notice something about that. The nobility of this woman, that's kind of an ironic word. She uh, claims to have uh, a noble aspect with all the scarlet color of her robes and garments and, and with all the riches, the opulence that she's characterized by. And yet there is a corruption that is behind all of that. For her outward appearance, she is inwardly corrupt. Instead of a nobility, there is a, 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 actually in her a degradation that is very obvious. And her notoriety, there's a number of things that are brought before us here. But let me just identify what we're talking about here. This woman is a woman who represents faith gone south who represents truth that has been corrupted. You would actually be able to link her with the woman the Lord Jesus spoke about that had three measures of meal and introduced into it that which is uh, self-serving. The idea of something that's self-exalting, puffed up in its own importance, puts yeast into it. And actually the result is that the whole is permeated by the evil that is put into it. And so, the Lord Jesus is telling us just a little picture of what we have here in its final result. And that is a woman who represents truth totally corrupted and uh, depravity that is seen in what pretends to be spiritual. But her notoriety is, is in this. That in her, as we read at the end of chapter 18, and as is also pointed out in chapter 17, in her is the blood of the prophets and of the martyrs of Jesus. So that actually, in the name of religion, what is faithful to God has been persecuted and killed down through the ages to the present time. It will be true in the time that's coming, that seven year period of time, that never will there be more bloodshed, bloodshed on the part of those that are faithful to the Lord than is shed at the hands of those that claim to be religious, that claim to be dealing with, with worship. And that is the case, the notoriety of this woman. She is the persecutor of those that are true to the Lord Jesus. She herself, pictured as a harlot, untrue to truth 
and to manhood and to right. Now this woman has a dominance. And I'm going to suggest to you that her dominance is for half of this week, the first half of the week. She has a dominance. She's just pictured as riding the beast. And the beast that she's riding uh, is identified for us as well. And how she is so prosperous is identified for us. So this, let's just look at that. First of all, where she sits. Interesting that when you look at the city in chapter 21, you're looking at a, at a city and she's linked with heaven. She comes down from God out of heaven. When you look at this woman, you know where you'll find her? You'll find her in a wilderness. Empty. Barren. Unfruitful. That's where she is. And yet she is pictured as sitting on many waters. Her foundation is unstable. As grand a lady as she purports to be, her foundation is unstable. But that actually, where she sits, is interpreted down further in the chapter. As many nations and people and kindreds and tongues. So that actually this woman has her influence in every corner of the globe. She straddles all the nations with her character of abomination as far as God is concerned. Now let's just stop for a minute or two so we get a, a clearer view of her with all the confusion that she involves as Babylon, the mystery of great Babylon. She represents the culmination of all of man's religion. It is hard for me to picture this at the present time, but I am assuming that this woman has the capability of embracing all the varied denominations of Christendom, has the ability to embrace all the stray, the maverick cults that go by the name Christian, has the ability beyond that, and this is where I am, I am wondering how it can possibly be. She has the ability to embrace all the stray faiths from Christianity. She has the ability to embrace Islam, I would take it. She has the ability to embrace Eastern religions. She has the ability to bring all of those together. You have your way, and I have my way, and who's to say which is right, and we can peacefully coexist together. Now, that seems to me to be so difficult to affect in light of the fact that uh, Judaism and Christianity and, and Islam are at the present time at loggerheads. But I'll tell you what, the spirit that will make Babylon work is the spirit that's being taught in schools today. It's the spirit that is pervading the news media. It's the spirit that's pervading television. And it is simply this. No one has the right to say there is truth with a capital T. No one has a right to say anyone else is wrong. Everything is right as long as it works for you. Absolute moral relativism at its worst, at its best as far as men are concerned, at its worst as far as God is concerned, will be the total amalgamation of all the faiths of this world when Christ and those who belong to him have been excluded from it altogether. What a tragic mixture is coming in this world that uh, actually it is no God who is the God 
that is right in everyone's eyes. The God that suits you and the God that suits me is not the true God at all. We must go to revelation. We, not as I mean the word of God itself. We must go to what God tells us about himself and hold to that. That is God. And what he has given us of truth is absolute, cannot be compromised, and it is our responsibility as believers to be simply true to that no matter how much evil prospers. That's the message of the book of the Revelation to those seven churches. So she sits with an amalgamation of, na- of nations and, and, and cultures and languages and tribes and people. Where she, what she rides? She rides the beast. Now that beast is identified as having ten horns and seven heads. You've seen that beast before. That's the revived Roman Empire. And that, that empire is described in this threefold way. It is, it was, it is not, and it shall be. Now that is just another way of saying it had an existence, it goes out of existence, it returns to existence. That's the revived Roman Empire that we have talked about in nights that are past. I think that that's at least one of the meanings of the wound, the head that was wounded to death. It's a, an empire that was defeated. And yet, miraculously, that empire will all be ready with all its ancient trappings and all its power and its hold in the world, its importance in the world. Actually, that empire will be the leading empire in the world in the days that we are talking about. So just as the superpower of the present world is our own favored nation, the superpower in the world then and likely to a far greater degree than the U.S. is today, the superpower will be this revived Roman Empire. Whether this will be part of it or not, I'm not prepared to say. All I can tell you is this is the beast that men marvel at because it was and is not and shall be, is. So, she sits on this and we learn about this that those seven heads are seven mountains which does not really help us too much. Seven heads and seven mountains is just about as confusing. Some people have said it's the seven hills of Rome, but I think maybe if we just take it um, with the expression that comes next, and they are seven kings also, that those seven mountains represent kings, authority, power. And so what we're looking at is a beast that is, is marked by seven kings, And uh, five of them have been, John is told. One of them is. And then there's another one to come. And after those seven, there's an eight. You say, man, this is confusing. Well, if we're looking at Domitian, who is the emperor, when uh, John is writing, there's another that is to come, and who that may be, uh, doubt that it's constant, or that it's... uh, who was it linked with Constantinople now that I got this out? But anyway, it could be Constantine. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, happened. Uh, it could be Constantine who is purported to have converted to Christianity and made at least Christianity the, the uh, religion of Rome. Uh, or it could be some other emperor in between because there are a couple of hundred years in between. But regardless of whoever it may be, the eighth then is this man of sin that we are looking at and have talked about in nights that are past. So, here is this woman who dominates, who rides on, 
who uses the civil government of this superpower as actually her means to power, to riches, to dominance. So that the strange thing is that the man of sin, for those first three and a half years, who is a man of peace and negotiating and with charm will quell every qualm and this woman will ride that beast with a, an, an adulterous relationship, whether that is physical or at least it's spiritual, compromising truths and using this civil government as her means to dominate and, and to affect the whole world. Uh, move on from that. How she prospers. There is a difficulty that I will admit to, and I think the solution of the difficulty is this. You have two accounts of the demise of this woman. One is when the kings, the ten kings, now you see those ten kings, maybe I should go back and finish that. We have seven heads that are emperors, past in John's day, present in John's day, one other to come, and then the eighth, who is this revived Roman Empire emperor, a man of sin. But then there are ten horns and those are not kings or anyone in authority in John's day. Those are the ten kings that are linked with that coming revived Roman Empire. And so they're interpreted. Ten horns being ten kings who will give their united power to this eighth man, this man of sin. And he will be the man then who rules in this revived Roman Empire. Now, those ten kings turn against her. And, of course, the, the, the man who himself is the leader, they all turn against her and she is destroyed. She comes to her end. And yet in the next chapter, you read about a different end for Babylon with all its commerce and so on. So let me just picture for you three realms of society that are linked together by this woman. She links together the spiritual aspect of society, this mixed worship that is not worship but is abominable. The political world that she is able to dominate by this unholy union with the beast. And then the third world that she affects is the commercial world. You're talking about something that's pervasive over the whole of society. So commerce seems to be her specialty. And she is marked by uh, tremendous riches and so on. We'll come to that down here further. But there is a spiritual aspect of this woman unspiritual, and there's a commercial aspect of this woman. And I think the two divide in her destruction, but they are married in her existence as we see her to begin with. Is that clear enough? Follow? She has these two aspects, and she is linked with the political aspect through riding the beast. But now, just to, to notice about this woman, her defilement. She is a woman of absolute wickedness as far as God is concerned. The most abominable type of thing. It may be physical, morally, that we're talking about, but it certainly is spiritually. That she is mixing things that don't belong together. She is crossing barriers that should never be crossed. Untrue to God, untrue to truth. Her wickedness, and then all of this is worked by uh, her apparent attractiveness, 
so that there is a confusion when it comes to anything that has to do with God. And this woman is marked by tremendous wealth. In our part of the country, there are, there were, historically, large estates, beautiful places, big homes, servants' quarters, gardens' quarters, gatekeepers' places, and, and all well manicured. In fact, going back 50, 60, 90 years, um, there were Christians that came over from the old country and they became the servants, the chauffeurs, the gardeners, and all that, and governesses in these kinds of estates. Those estates almost entirely today do not belong to the families that they belonged to way back then. Too much tax burden. They are now the property of the religious system that can hold that property and not have to pay taxes. Use it for whatever use it needs to be used for. But uh, uh, that's just a little reminder to me of wealth that is the trappings of religion. And might as well take another stray shot. But uh, I think it is one of the greatest curses to the gospel today that the average man on the street links evangelism with money. So that the evangelist on the television cannot conclude his work without pleading for money so that Oral Roberts goes up into his ivory tower and he will not come down until so much money has been, how many millions have been raised. And do you think that that enhances the appearance of the gospel for men and women? Everybody that's interested in the gospel is only interested in money. I deal with that. Tell somebody a preacher of the gospel. Oh, so you're looking for money. What a tragedy. Money does not belong in the public face of evangelism. Uh, the woman is linked with wealth and tragically uh, she will be the wealthiest of women and actually apparently all the merchandise of earth in her day will all run through her hands. Uh, looking at her destruction, you have her spiritual destruction at the end of chapter 17, which we read, and then we just touch down on her commercial destruction in chapter 18. For spiritual destruction, she will be hated by these ten horns led by the man of sin. Why would she be hated? Because ultimately the man of sin wants everyone to worship him. And that's what will take place at the middle of the week. So what is he gonna, how is he going to coexist with her who is trying to work away, getting everybody together to worship she has done for him all that she needs to do. And I would suggest to you, by the, by the middle of the week, he turns on her and exposes her nakedness and her shame, and finally she is overthrown, and as far as her spiritual impact is concerned, she's displaced. Who takes over? The man of sin. And he will claim worship. And now what she did to the saints, he will be glad to do. And he takes up her persecution of those that are true to the Lord. And he is the one who then, for the last half of the week, is persecuting and killing all that are faithful to the Lord Jesus himself. Chosen and true and faithful. So, that is her shame. As this woman of confusion in religion is brought to 
tragic, sad, sad, shameful end. But she is succeeded by the worst idolatry, by the worst mixture, by the worst abomination that has ever been in this world. And the man will seek publicly, visibly, to displace God, to claim worship, and to do away with the name of the true living God. And then the destruction of this woman commercially seems to fall probably in that same period of time. Now, I'll give you a reason for that in a minute. I'll suggest it to you. But you notice that the merchants are standing in awe of this woman as they look at the amazing sight. Now, don't, don't get me, don't accuse me of getting things confused here. But how did you feel? Did you actually see the, the, the Twin Towers fall? I, I don't think I will ever forget watching and I saw the South Tower, I think I got the right one, and I thought to myself, I think there's a little bend in it. And then I saw a little bit of movement, I said, I can't believe it, it's, it's going down. And then to watch the North Tower go as well. But with that, we watched an amazing toll on the economy of our country collapsing right there. It affected communications, it affected the stock market, it affected so many things that are at the very heart of commerce. I just can't believe that the people that perpetrated that knew how successful they really were. But you have that picture of the amazement of watching what in some sense is a nerve center of our economy collapsing. Multiply that by thousands. And the merchants of the world take a look at the economic chaos that comes when spiritual abomination bites the dust. And with her, all that system of commerce that had affected all the kings of the earth and all the opulence and wealth of gold and silver and pearls and diamonds and, and all the expensive commerce of the world collapses in the fall of this woman. Now, we've talked about the merchants and the merchandise, the mayhem that came as a result of just the total disruption of the economy of merchandising, of buying and selling and marketing. And the millstone in the hand of the angel that's cast into the sea. And this is how Babylon has fallen. With the mighty hand of God, she is cast down and will never be seen again. This is the end of all religious confusion. And no wonder the angel says rejoice, thank God, for the end of all that compromises what is of God and brings in religious confusion to that which goes by the name of God and of Christ. Now I mentioned to you one reason why I'm suggesting to you that this destruction is somewhere near the middle of the week as well. As she falls spiritually, the man of sin rises to claim worship. How does he enforce his realm? How does he make sure that you have to worship him? He takes over commerce. She is destroyed and commerce is collapsing. I take it he seizes the moment and brings all commerce under his own hand and is able to enforce his worship through the commerce then that he regulates for the last Part of the week. My suggestion that is not clear as to where these two events happen, her spiritual and commercial destruction, 
But I think that in light of what we have been reading, uh, it likely occurs in the middle of the week. And she stands now and all the dust has settled as God's object lesson. She reflects all the consummate evil of Satan's working down through the long centuries till he had honed his work to its finest and she represents the devil's finest and in God's view humanity's worst. Babylon the Great, the mother of all that is immoral and wrong before God and the abominations of all the earth. But let me just move from that to what I call glad relief. Because in the world of confusion at the present time, and is there confusion on religious things evident today? It will become worse. Unbelievably worse. There is a simple, clear message that God still presents. And that is the message of the gospel. Thank God for every Christian in the world and every man who speaks from the Bible who gives a clear, simple declaration of the changeless gospel. It is the greatest preservative in the world. And as the gospel becomes compromised, so will all the rest of the truth that's associated with the gospel be compromised and lost. There is a message that comes from God with divine authority, with absolute purity, and it alone brings the message of salvation to a world that would like to think everyone can get to God their own way. Some come up one side of the mountain and some come up the other side of the mountain. It's not a mountain, it's a steep descent into the pit of abyss forever and forever. Man's ways seem right to a man, the end thereof, the ways of death. And so, I just want to take the minutes that remain tonight to do what I can to simply present to you God's changeless, unconfused, singular message. There is only one hope for this world. There is only one hope for every soul in this world. The clear gospel, as I would understand it, must insist on this. There are only two positions in this world. Either a person is saved or lost. It seems to me to be confusion being sown into the message when we talk about pre-Christians who are not yet Christians, but we are sure they will be. If they are pre-Christians but not yet Christians, they are lost. And to be honest, in the Word of God, a person will never be brought to repentance who does not understand their position before God. To just be kind of working closer and closer to God is to somehow or other fail to see my total alienation before God. There are only two positions, saved or lost. Every person who is saved has a boundary line in life when before that moment they were not saved and at that moment they were saved and saved for eternity. What a tragic confusion that people are being told that they can grow into this salvation. They may learn more about salvation and they may have a deepening interest. But the Lord Jesus says it's a matter of passing from death to life. It's a matter of being translated from the kingdom, the power of darkness, 
into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so everyone in the meeting tonight is not in one of two positions because of an experience, but is in one of two positions as a result of personal dealings with God and with Christ. There may have been an emotional experience that leaves you as lost afterwards as you were before and your light tells it. But every person who is saved has a moment they will never forget. I was at the funeral of Nettie Parks two weeks ago now. Is it? And Nettie, at the end of her life, was losing her memory a bit too. But she was pretty cute. She could get away with it for the most part. But I couldn't help, even just in the way she looked, I couldn't help remember her mother, Mrs. Lindsay, who was older than Jeanette. And she went home to heaven. And uh, her memory was gone quite a bit further than Jeanette's was. And I remember visiting old Mrs. Lindsay in the hospital, just a withered up little old white face and a few bones that were attached to it, uh, lying in the hospital bed. And uh, it's always very cheerful, so I said hello to her, and she responded very cheerfully and tried to make a little conversation, but it wasn't too much we could talk about because she didn't remember too much. I said, uh, who is this, this lady over here beside you? That was her daughter, Nettie who had been taking care of her for years in her own, in Nettie's home. She looked up at her and she said, she said, Scott, I don't really know. And she looked up at her own daughter, her daughter, so sad. I said to her, Grandma Lindsay, do you remember when you were saved? Oh, yes, I most certainly do. I was 14 years of age and she began to tell me the story of how she was saved. I thought, that's great. Never forget the moment when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I don't know how my memory's going. If it gets a whole lot worse, I'll be in serious trouble. But I, I hope I will never, never forget the time when I was 16 years of age in the upstairs back room in my parents' home with a Bible open on my knee when I discovered that what took place at Calvary answered to God for me. That the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Two positions. You're either saved or lost. And as you sit here tonight, it would be the best help to you to settle not before any person, but before God himself. Where am I? Two positions. Two problems involved in the gospel message. And the problem, first of all, is what I am. Every one of us a sinner. Oh, we're all very comfortable to say we're all sinners. But when you begin to understand what that means, it means that I am at the total end of the spectrum from God, the far end. What God is and what I am are at opposite ends. What God is and what I am are opposed to each other. And what I require spiritually, I will not, cannot produce. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. And what the Bible says is very simply because of what man is, he needs a total new birth. And, and an individual has no more capability of giving himself birth than of producing and bringing himself into life to begin with. But this new birth 
said the Lord Jesus, or says John at the introduction of the gospel, as many as received him, the Lord Jesus, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, who were born, not of the flesh, nor of the, not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Doesn't come from your parents, your heritage. Tragic to think there will be many parents in heaven and the children in hell forever. It's not of blood. Nor is it of the will of the flesh. I cannot will myself to be saved. Yes, I bow my will to the word of God, but it is only God that gives me divine life. And it's not by the will of man. There's not another man that can put his hand on my head or shoulder or forehead and pronounce me saved. But of God. Unless God gives life to a sinner, the sinner will perish in his sins forever. Because I am a sinner, I am barred from the presence of God. No defilement connected with my nature will ever be in God's fair heaven. Because of sins coming into the world, we must die. We can't stay here. Because we have become sinners, we can't go there. There's only one other possibility. And that is eternal judgment. There are two problems. One is what I am, and the second problem is what I have done. What I am will keep me out of heaven. What I have done will draw me into eternal fire and hell forever. That is the problem between God and man. What about your sins? What about this guilt in the presence of God? What about the fact you have disobeyed God's law? You are a criminal in the eyes of the Almighty. And the God who is mighty to judge a Babylon, as we have read, is mighty to judge sinners. When you think of the language of the Word of God, of God casting down a sinner into destruction, their feet are set in slippery places. And to think of younger people or older people with their sins fully known to God, with every sin an affront, a rebellion against God, and they are breathing God's good air and living on God's good earth. And their feet are in slippery places. At any moment they could slide out of life to face the consequence of their sin. There are two problems. What I am, I'm a sinner. I can't be in heaven. Help us. What I have done, my sins, that will draw me into the judgment of God forever and in the great white throne the book of my sins to be opened the dead judged out of the books according to their deeds and as a result of their deeds they are assigned to a deeper place in the lake of fire with its endless torment forever sin is an enemy sin is your enemy I used to think sin was something to be desired didn't want to have to live without the sins that I thought I would enjoy. Sin is an enemy. It will drag your soul to eternal judgment. There are just two problems that we're emphasizing, and there are two prospects. Everyone in this meeting tonight, a hundred years from now, maybe fifty years from now, maybe ten years from now, everyone here, Ten years from now, will either be with Christ and enjoy heaven, or will be banished from God forever. There are only two prospects. There's a heaven with all its joy and glory. Wouldn't want to miss heaven. Of course, the reason I wouldn't want to miss heaven is because Jesus is there. Thank God for the wonderful prospect of being with Him forever and forever, and to praise Him without ending. As he died for a guilty sinner like me. 
bore what I should have borne, suffered what I should have suffered, and answered to God for what I could never have answered to God for. He died for my sins. Heaven, thank God. Who here can understand what heaven will be like? It's beyond our ability to understand. Who here tonight can understand what hell will be like? The Bible says an awful lot more about what hell will be like than it does what heaven will be like. But hell is unthinkable. Fire that never ends and thirst and torment that never ends and a memory that plagues you forever and prayers that go unanswered forever. Oh, what an awful thing. To think that someone we have loved and lived with know what it means to be in hell forever. Two, two prospects. Heaven or hell. Forever. There are two presentations in the gospel. We have the great privilege of presenting Christ as Savior. Of telling you of a cross which is God's only remedy for a world of sinners. The only way for one sin ever to be put away is through that cross. I listened to the gospel for so many years and I had it figured out that my sins being taken away depended on something I would do. What I learned the night I was saved was my sins being taken care of depended on what Christ did for me 1900 plus years ago on a cross. When he suffered and died for sin, the wonderful truth of the word of God is this. To me this is one of the clearest gospel verses and it won't be one you're expecting. Christ also has once for all, suffered for sins. Why did he suffer on that cross? He suffered for sins. Whose sins did he suffer for? They could not be his. He is the righteous one. And what he did suffering on that cross is sufficient. It is a once for all suffering for sin. If I were to suffer for my sins, you understand what that would mean? Eternal fire. The one thing that stands between me and eternal fire is this. Christ also hath once for all suffered for sins. Not his. But I wonder for whose sins did he suffer. The just for the unjust. I remember a young woman a lot of, year, a lot of years ago now who had struggled for years to be saved. God was dealing with her. And we had the privilege of sitting in her apartment, Jean Higgins and myself, talking to her about salvation. And we were going over this very verse. And she just asked her the question, who does God mean by the unjust, the unrighteous? Well, she said, he means me. Well, she said, can it be that simple? And she looked at us to see if we would light up and she'd be all right. But... Two hard nuts for just poker face. And so, little by little, her smile kind of faded and she looked again. I mean, is this, can it be this simple? And she looked back at what the Word of God said. Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, and God means me by the unjust. Then, she said, then I'll never have to suffer for my sins. She didn't get any further confirmation from us. She got a confirmation from the Word of God. That's what counts. Because we are presenting Christ who saves from sin and the Word of God who delivers from doubts, which delivers from doubts. A person knows they are saved 
by one solid, unchangeable means, by the Word of God. Thank God tonight that what Christ did at Calvary, Calvary saved me from my sins, and what He tells me in His Word saves me from my doubts. He tells me very simply, this is where I, where I found assurance that just moments after I was saved, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. If God says that, that's all I need. Of course, I could find it in quite a few places. But one will do. God says, by personal faith in Christ, my Savior, who died for my sins, God says, has everlasting life. In the Gospel, there are two positions, saved or lost. Two problems, what I am, what I have done. Two prospects, heaven or hell. Two presentations, the work of Christ, for salvation, the Word of God for assurance. Two possibilities. You can either take what God said or go your own way. There's nothing in between. Salvation by faith is not some mysterious truth that God sort of just puts in front of people but holds it so they can't figure it out. Lost sinners have no choice but to believe what God said. That's why salvation was so simple for those of us that finally faced the fact I can't save myself. I must depend on something apart from me. And God's salvation depends on just taking what God says about the work that was finished about the Savior who can deliver you from eternal judgment. Two possibilities. You just take what God said. That is the wisest thing in the world to do. It's the safest thing in the world to do. If I could somehow or other give you an electric shock of feeling, that would be a very unreliable thing to trust. But if God gives you the word, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never change. And what you find in God's word to anchor on tonight will be the same tomorrow morning and it will be the same if you have the experience of seeing death coming towards you and the moments of slipping away in life you can go right back to where you cast your anchor the word of God will never change and the same word of God will meet you on the other side never change there's a possibility you can just take what God said or there's a possibility tonight you can take your own chances you can just hazard on what you think is reliable. Maybe tonight would be a good time, but I think I can get this salvation tomorrow night. I think I can get this salvation when I'm 15, when I'm 19, when I'm 25, when I'm 40. Disregard God's word. Two possibilities. You can choose tonight to accept what God is telling you and leave tonight with heaven assured. Leave tonight with eternal life. Leave tonight with the best that God can possibly give to you, yours, secured by what Christ did at Calvary, assured by the Word of God. Why would anyone leave without that? Or you can leave tonight with the wrath of God abiding on you, the storm cloud of judgment rising before you, and the reality, if we have spoken of anything that ought to impress you, it is this. The door for you could close tonight. Oh Lord, Jesus is coming. Make sure you take God's simple message. It's not a confused message. It 
points to one beacon of hope alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let us pray.